What can state mottos tell us about American liberty and American history? We're going to talk about that today on episode 753 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Welcome to 2023. I'm really excited to be back on the show. We've got 200 plus episodes coming at you this year, so buckle up. It's going to be a lot of fun. And as you see, I've already made a few changes, but I want to remind you to get McClanahan Academy. If you like the podcast, you're going to love McClanahan Academy. It's a great educational resource. Just go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. And of course, if you're on the list, I send you great coupons. All right, so McClanahan Academy is the way to go. Enroll, McClanahanAcademy.com. All right, let's talk about the show, and let's talk about what we've got going on here. I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we're going to talk about state mottos. And in fact, I want to focus on two state mottos in particular. And you might know where I'm going to go with this, but I'm talking about Massachusetts and Virginia. Now, I've already done an episode on different concepts of liberty, and I think that these two mottos really highlight the differences in America between the North and the South. Those that focus on the North and the South dichotomy as only relying on slavery miss the cultural underpinnings of everything going on in America from the colonial period forward. They don't seem to get it. And I understand why. Look, I've said this before. When I was a young undergraduate and graduate student, I only wanted to talk about military history and politics and diplomacy and all those things. And I really didn't like cultural history at all. But as I matured and got older, I understood things a little better. I understood that politics flowed downstream from culture. You can't separate the two. And the reason we have so many, so much disparity in, in American politics and uh, the current political battles are all based on culture. And it's reflected in the state mottos, many of which were adopted in the 18th century. And again, Virginia and Massachusetts really highlight this. I'm also going to talk a little bit about South Carolina because their motto is also interesting and it goes back to the state seal. But look, federalism is a beautiful thing and you really do see it in the state mottos, how the people of these states think about government and society. I mean, some of them are just ridiculously stupid and I wouldn't want to live in these states just for that reason. But, and others are quite interesting. Uh, the state, of course, in which I live in is, you know, we dare defend our rights. And uh, I think that's a great state motto. Uh, the, the state flag that was adopted in Alabama in 1861 uh, was a beautiful flag. It's been changed now. And of course, the modern flag is the Cross of St. Andrews, which was adopted in the early 20th century. But uh, the blue flag of the Republic of Alabama was a beautiful flag. But there are so many interesting things about these state mottos. And again, they reflect the culture of the period. So I want to talk about that. We're going to start with Massachusetts. And what does the state motto of Massachusetts have to say about American history or Massachusetts in general or New England culture? Now, to understand New England, you have to understand Massachusetts. There is no New England without Massachusetts. It was the hub of New England. You did have other states that were important, of course. You know, Connecticut was important. Rhode Island didn't like any of them. And um, in the future, I'm going to do a, an episode on Rhode Island 
In a very interesting letter that was produced in Rhode Island during the ratification process of the Constitution and why they rejected it, or one of the reasons why, at least an argument made uh, from someone in the state of Rhode Island, it's a really strong argument. But Massachusetts was the hub of everything. And the state motto of Massachusetts, if you translate it directly into English, the modern translation is, By the sword we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. By the sword we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. Now, that is a very Orwellian phrase, is it not? I mean, it seems to be that way. By the sword we seek peace. Now, over the break, I uh, posted on on Twitter. If you don't follow me on Twitter, you should, at Brian McClanahan. But I posted a, a, a picture on Twitter of a new book uh, on by... Uh, on Abraham Lincoln, and uh, the the title of the book, if I can find the the uh, there it is, find the picture again. It's Lincoln and the fight for peace. Now, Lincoln and the fight for peace. Now, think about that again. It sounds very Orwellian. Lincoln and the fight for peace. But if you're in Massachusetts, it makes plenty of sense. It's a very puritanical way of thinking about this concept of liberty and this concept of society that goes back to the 17th century in New England. And again, I've mentioned this before. The best place to get this cultural history of New England in a concise format is David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed. If you don't have that book, it's about 900 pages. Well, first of all, I'll show it to you right here. Here it is. If you're watching on YouTube, you got it. You can go out and get this. It's a great book. Fantastic book. By the way, follow me on YouTube if you don't. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Facebook. Just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Follow me there. You can get all those social media accounts. But you've got this fantastic book that is a cultural history of colonial America. And he talks about this very New England concept of liberty. Now, that phrase itself, if you look at the English translation, and then you look at the original Latin, is quite different, in fact, in the original Latin. Um, in fact, in the original Latin, it is, she seeks with the sword a quiet peace under liberty. That's a little different than by the sword we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. This is the modern English translation. but And that would fit more in with this very puritanical worldview that I'll talk about in a second. The other is from Algeron Sidney. Now, if you don't know who Algeron Sidney is, Algeron Sidney was a very uh, interesting figure in English history. In fact, he was executed for treason by Charles II, Charles II, the Merry Monarch. And New Englanders tend to like Algeron Sidney more than people in the rest of America. And perhaps that's because they were much more uh, anti-monarchist, at least the Stuarts, than the rest of America. Charles II, of course, was the Merry Monarch. And Virginians tended to like Charles II. In fact, they were very quick to uh, promote his restoration because they really hated Puritans. William Barclay and others. I mean, these people hung on to Charles I, who was executed by the Puritans, and hung on to, uh, clung, clung to this very royalist tradition longer than anyone else in the colonies. And you had this, this certain admiration for Algeron Sidney in New England. Now, it didn't mean that Southerners didn't think he was a great figure either. You had a lot of Southerners who would be opposed to executive tyranny. And in fact, 
That's very important with Virginia. But Sydney was kind of the symbol for New England of you know, maybe a little more democracy. Of course, the Puritans hanging on to this belief in this you know, anti-Stuart, anti-monarchy might have been a little more interested in someone like Algeron Sydney. John Adams wrote a lot about Sydney. Of course, Jefferson and Madison did too. Jefferson loved a pamphlet that was published in 1803 in defense of his administration under the pseudonym Algeron Sydney. In fact, he sent it to all kinds of friends. So it didn't mean that Southerners didn't think about Algeron Sydney, but certainly New Englanders did. And when we think about this Orwellian phrase, is it Orwellian or is it a reflection of culture? This book on Lincoln, again, seems to be you know, kind of Orwellian. Uh, it's a very strange title. And people pointed that out. Again, I'm going to read it to you. The title being uh, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. By the sword, we seek peace. It's a puritanical, New England-centered way of looking at the world. And that's because the Puritans had a concept of peace and liberty that was different than what they had in Virginia. In Virginia, their phrase is Six Semper Tyrannus, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But New England liberty was ordered liberty. It was the liberty of the community. Meaning that, and they called it, it was public liberty. It's kind of how they defined it, right? So the community was much more important than the individual. So, for example, New Englanders would have been fine with things like lockdowns and mask mandates and uh, you know, government shutdowns of, of public schools or whatever else. They would have been fine with all those things. It would have been fine with uh, a public acceptance of suppression of individual liberty. They were fine with those things because it reflected their culture. And if anyone else was doing something that would not fit with their peace, their concept of peace and order, they were willing to go to war to make it happen. It was a very expansive and very imperialistic look at peace and liberty. Now, they did talk about individual liberties in Massachusetts, but this was the plural, liberties. So the higher up you were in the social stratification in Massachusetts, the more liberties you had. So it could be, I can fish here and hunt here, and you can't, you see. So that would be their concept of liberty. It was certain individuals had more privileges, liberties, than others. It wasn't this concept of individual liberty. It was a privilege bestowed by society on you because of your place. But there was the public liberty, which required a certain obedience to order and the puritanical congregationalist order that they wanted. And they had all kinds of strange rules and messages. Look, if you read Albion Seed, you're going to shake your head and laugh at some of the stuff they came up with there. It's very superstitious and weird. And the thing about Massachusetts, too, I mean, we, we, you often hear about witchcraft in Massachusetts, overblown. But the reason that you had that, this preoccupation with witchcraft in Massachusetts, is because that was a, that was a, a way for women, at least, to, to or say to get rid of women who were bucking the established social order. They were witches. They were obviously under the spell of some pagan or supreme evildoer, and they needed to go. 
In fact, in Massachusetts, they would throw you in jail if you were dangerous to the community. They would get rid of you, or they wouldn't even accept you into the community to begin with. There were all kinds of rules in Massachusetts which we would consider to be tyrannical. Tyrannical, but not to them. Because the community was more important than the individual. In fact, they don't even use the word tyranny in their motto. Now, the original Latin phrase actually has tyranny in it, right? But they truncated that. They cut it out. And if you look at the way that you have this idea of the, you know, we, with, we draw the sword for peace, but peace under liberty, it's their concept of these things that matters. And they often had these very vague phrases they would use to maintain order and stability in Massachusetts and the surrounding areas. Now, Connecticut was a little different. Um, Connecticut's motto was uh, not like this. Uh, the, the motto was, he who transplanted sustains, and that was very much in line with the religious order. So he who transplanted sustains. This goes actually goes back to the 17th century. It was in the original charter, and they're talking about God. God transplanted them there, and God sustains them. It wasn't this kind of uh, you know, strange fascination with liberty and peace and order. It was much more religious in tone. So they that that motto from the 17th century has been moved forward. Now they've secularized it tremendously. In fact, they use it to justify universal health care in, in in Massachusetts. I'm sorry, in Connecticut now. You know, he who transplanted sustains. I guess that uh, that would be the government. I don't know, but they've been, they've used it to do things like that, which is very odd. So you have this concept of liberty in Massachusetts that's dramatically different than what you have in Virginia. Six semper tyrannis. Now, we know Virginia doesn't care about that anymore. But in the 18th century, they certainly did. Six Semper Tyrannus, thus always to tyrants, is the sword, the death to tyrants. That's what that means, death to tyrants. Now, this very concept of tyranny is important in Virginia because it was important in the concept of liberty throughout the South. It goes back to the ancient constitutions of their fathers, the Magna Carta, in this concept of English liberties. Now, they did talk about things like rights, and tomorrow I'm going to discuss the latest dust-up between Michael Anton and Paul Gottfried at American Greatness and this idea of rights and liberties and what all that means. I'll get into that tomorrow. But certainly liberty was more important than right in a lot of ways. So it didn't mean they didn't talk about declaration of rights and natural law and natural rights. They did get into these things. A lot of them eventually would reject it and think they went way off the rails. And I don't think they really ever believed it in the way that someone like Michael Anton thinks that they did. But anyways, uh, they did talk about these things, but the idea of tyranny and slavery, these are two things they discussed quite a lot in the 17th and 18th century. The opposite of of uh, independence and liberty is slavery. Now, you can say, well, of course, they knew a lot about slavery in Virginia because they were all slave owners. But they didn't think there was any contradiction there because liberty to them, as Hackett Fisher describes it, is what he calls hegemonic liberty, and there were different manifestations of it. It could first and foremost mean uh, a reaction to a strong central government, tyranny. Someone who was taking your liberties in a way that's inconsistent with ancient customs and traditions. So in Virginia, they would be in favor of limited government, 
small government, and most importantly, a restriction on the tyranny of man, not in promotion of the liberty of man, or I should say restriction on the liberty of man. So laws were designed to check not the liberty of man, but the tyranny of man. So we have this idea that you have private property, and that would be, say, maybe a natural law in their mind. You have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and property. This is what George Mason said in 1776, which Thomas Jefferson copied. So if you were going to infringe on someone's property, that was violating natural law. Property was a natural right. And so violating someone's property was the tyranny of man, not the liberty of man. You could say, well, it's my liberty to do X, Y, and Z, but when it infringes on someone else's natural rights or liberties... Well, that becomes the tyranny of man. So the idea of government was to check the tyranny of man, not to check the liberty of man. This is an important distinction to make. But in either way, the, the concept is to prevent slavery to a central authority. Virginians were very concerned about their own personal independence, which is something in Massachusetts they really didn't care about a whole lot of. As long as the community was safe... The fight for peace, Abraham Lincoln, we draw the sword for peace, but peace only under our concept of liberty. As long as the community was safe, they were good to go in Massachusetts, not in Virginia. Individual liberty was more important than anything else. You could look at this in terms of taxation. You could look at this in terms of the rule of law which, as Fisher points out, they were very concerned about the rule of law. I didn't say they weren't concerned about the rule of law of Massachusetts. They were. But in Virginia, this would manifest itself in the way that they conducted business and the rule of law and the power of courts and the power of the legislature vis-a-vis the courts. The rule of law would even be affected by their individual liberty. And more importantly, and most importantly... It would manifest itself in a way in how they conducted themselves personally. You see, all of the planting planter elite in Virginia certainly considered themselves to be elites, just like you had an elite in Massachusetts. But that was the liberty of uh, and, and not being subject to anyone else. Right? It was independence, individual independence. No one controls me. I have liberty. This is my estate. In my estate, I am king. And that's a very Whiggish concept. Anti-monarchy eventually. But, I mean, at first they would believe in the, in the king because the king provided this sort of order and stability and their own hegemonic power. But when that was done away with, then they looked at it as the country. The, the country against the court, which would be this kind of arbitrary power coming out of a central authority, which they did not necessarily have complete control over because you had people like Massachusetts and Connecticuters and other people, New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians in a government with them and their concept of liberty and independence and culture were dramatically different. And they recognize this, the beauty of federalism. It's why we have federalism. We have federalism to ensure that Massachusetts can be Massachusetts and Virginia can be Virginia. So that Massachusetts wouldn't dominate Virginia and vice versa. And they wouldn't have wanted it that way. Because they had their own localized view of the world. This is where I say think locally, act locally. So in Virginia, they were very concerned about tyranny. 
the abridgment of independence and individual liberty. That says a lot about what Virginia will be moving forward. And then, of course, you move into the 20th century, and we no longer have this, in the 21st century, no longer have this uh, planting elite in society. And you would get a much more egalitarian view of this. But certainly in the South today, you still have this idea of independence and personal liberty as opposed to community liberty that you will see where the Puritans had heavy influence. Not only New England, but eventually the Midwest, also parts of the West. Look, there's a reason why we have the Yankee mentality, and it's not a Northern, it's a Yankee mentality, which is New England. You can be a Northerner, not a Yankee. You can be a Southerner and still be a Yankee, right? You can live in the South, but still be a Yankee. But it's a certain mentality that everyone has to live like me. If they don't live like me, I will force them to live like me. Now, it doesn't mean that Southerners didn't believe in rules. They did, and they believed in order. They believed in a certain kind of order. And in Virginia, it was a hegemonic order. Uh, in the, the frontier areas, it would be a natural kind of order where you'd have, again, a natural elite, someone like Andrew Jackson, something like that. But... Uh, they did believe in community order, and there had to be rules. They weren't just radical libertarians where anything went. There were rules with this. And I think that's where people miss what the South is. It certainly has a libertarian streak, but there had to be some rules. And those rules were to, were to prevent the tyranny of man. And, uh, you know, it could be um, uh, in your own community, right, where you have certain rules so that we don't have people doing obnoxious things because it infringes on the liberty of others to enjoy their own liberty or something like that. I mean, there, there are ways to look at it, you know, homeowners association, whatever it is, to prevent obnoxiousness and the tyranny of man. So, Southerners did believe in rules. They believed in government, just very limited to prevent tyranny. That was it. Even at the local level, they certainly believed in that. So you have these two things, um, that you know are at odds with each other, Massachusetts and Virginia. And then you throw in South Carolina. South Carolina's seal is really interesting. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a beautiful seal, and it has two Latin phrases in it. Um, and both of these phrases speak to the period of time they were going for independence. Um, one of them is, while I breathe, I hope. Uh, which is, you know, interesting. And the other is prepared in mind and resources. Now, prepared in mind and resources actually goes back to the Battle of uh, Fort, Fort Moultrie, which um, was one of, the, one of the really significant battles of the American War for Independence, where South Carolina prepared by putting palmetto logs on their fort, and the British couldn't take the fort. So the preparation was there, right? The, the prepared in mind and resources. They were prepared in mind for independence and prepared in resources to do the same thing. But then, while I breathe, I hope. It's a very positive assessment. And it was a hope for independence. It was a hope for liberty. The sword produced hope. Not peace and liberty the way that Massachusetts defined it, but hope. And so it's a much different kind of, it's a, it's a cavalier concept still in the way and not what you would have in Massachusetts because it was, I'm alive and I hope for better. I hope for better. 
for a future of independence while I breathe. It's not a collective, it's an individual. While I breathe. Now, of course, you could say the collective people of South Carolina. But regardless, it's a different concept of liberty. And you would have this in South Carolina. You would have this in Virginia than what you would have in Massachusetts or Connecticut. It didn't mean that people in Connecticut at times weren't interested in individual liberty. They were. It didn't mean that people in, in Massachusetts weren't in both places weren't interested in these things. They were. Of course, by the early 19th century, you have the live free or die state of New Hampshire. Now, that comes around in the early 19th century, not, not in the colonial period of the late 18th, but the early 19th is when that actually, that phrase uh, is then used. But we have these very interesting concepts of liberty and independence that develop in the colonies and then in the 18th century are manifested in state mottos. And it really does reflect the culture of the areas, not the other way around. Politics flows downstream from culture. So as you move into the 19th century and you see Virginia still interested in their rights and liberties in opposition to tyranny, when you go to 1861, they didn't secede in 1861, early 1861, when they had the opportunity. There was no tyranny there yet. The tyranny only came when Lincoln called up 75,000 troops to put down the South. Then you had tyranny. Then you had the sword being used in an illegal and artificial way. And Virginia would not stand for it. So that would come the tyranny, six Semper Tyrannus. You would have people like Albert Taylor Bledsoe, who eventually... Uh, you know, was born in Kentucky, but in, lived in Illinois for a time, was good friends with Abraham Lincoln at one point, and then uh, was back in Virginia after the war. Um, but his book, Liberty and Slavery, which is often pointed out to be one of the uh, most important pro-slavery books ever written in the South, but he takes some time in that book to talk about the concept of liberty and rights, which I find to be fascinating. And I'll get more into this tomorrow when we, when we discuss Gottfried and Anton, but He's very clear that there's two things there. There's rights and there's liberties. You can still have natural rights, but your liberty can be infringed. And so the state, society would often determine liberties. For example, you can still have a natural right to life, but that can be take, your liberty can be taken away by the state. In fact, your life can even be taken away if you've done something in the tyranny of man. If you've taken someone else's life, then... As retribution, the state can take yours. Yours can be forfeit because you have committed a tyrannical act, you see. Now, he does say that you can't have, nobody can really punish. An individual can't punish another individual for transgressions. That has to be the state and then ultimately God's domain. And of course, Bledsoe was an ardent Episcopalian and a very religious man. So he would get into that part of it, the religious side of it. And that's also very important when you look at the, the origin and basis of all this stuff, particularly uh, when it comes to um, the Magna Carta. This was, a, this was Catholic England when that was, uh, when that was formalized. And then uh, the concept of liberty would be very much influenced by Puritan Massachusetts and much more, you know, Anglican Virginia, Episcopalian, eventually Episcopalian, but Anglican Virginia. There are two different concepts at work here because of the nature of religion and theology in these two areas as well. So 
that is a factor in all of this. And all of this, again, has to do with culture. The state mottos have a lot to say about concepts of liberty, concepts of order. And I think we miss that. You know, in Massachusetts, if you look at the modern translation, this would certainly lend to the idea that if there was an, a section or a state or a people alien to their concept of peace and liberty, it must be extinguished by the sword. The fight for peace. It has to be extinguished by the sword. It's a puritanical, imperialistic, culturally imperialistic way of looking at liberty. And anything that opposes that has to be destroyed for the good of the whole and the good of society. This is the root, in many ways, of the modern progressive left or the modern progressive right. Progressives, in general, are based on a puritanical order of society. And I know I have a lot of people that kind of like the Puritans, but the puritanical order extinguishing the alien, extinguishing that which they consider to be antithetical to their concept of peace and liberty, has to be a supreme part of their agenda. All right. Great to be back in the saddle. Again, I've got we've got 200 episodes this year. I'm really excited for 2023. Very glad to have you back. Got another great episode tomorrow. I'll see you then on the Brian McClanahan Show.